All right, we'll talk about our, our next article is a systemic review of all the different case reports out there done by uh, Sally Bradbury out of the UK and, and her group, also from Clintox in 2014. So to discuss this paper, we have Mike Moss. All right, as Ann said, this is a systematic review where they pretty much just summarize all the case reports out there. Um, I'll give you just kind of the overview because this can get a little dense in just like discussing every single case that they came across. In the end, patients either have a metal on metal or they had a failed hip and a metal bearing was put in. And then months to years later, they developed symptoms usually associated with some evidence of failure of the implant, like some hip pain. And the main categories that we've already talked about are hypothyroidism, some neurologic changes, which include vision, hearing, and questionable if there's other cognitive things, but certainly vision and hearing, and then cardiac effects. Usually a cardiomyopathy, but can just be diastolic dysfunction. There have been some pericardial effusions, but cardiomyopathy, hypothyroidism, vision and hearing changes with a painful hip and a cobalt concentration greater than 250 in most of the clear-cut cases in contrast to the 10 from these others. And I think the way to compare that is that the 10, they're saying, could be evidence of a problem with excessive wear on that rather than evidence of systemic cobalt toxicity. And all these patients with clear-cut cobalt toxicity had fairly elevated um, concentrations. So they did a search, which they described there in their methods, looking for cobalt and chromium and hips and arthroplasty and toxicity. And they ended up coming up with uh, 18 individual cases. One of the cases was reported six different times. Kudos to those authors for you know, really exploring that case in depth and getting it published. And they will pretty much spend the next several pages going through each case. Um, I don't want to belabor and like read word for word every single case here, but we can go through some of the highlights um, from some of them and also some of the more questionable ones. In the end, I believe they decide that they conclude 10 of the 18 um, were probably cobalt related and the other ones they're not quite sure due to perhaps um, symptoms not that convincing or some incomplete data. So case one, that you're going to see a pattern here of patient has a metal hip, they have some symptoms months to years later, they have some combination of neurologic thyroid and cardiac problems, there is a revision of the hip, and the symptoms often almost completely resolve or mostly resolve, and the cobalt concentrations decrease. A few cases of chelation, but most treatments were just removal of that metal implant. So case one, she has nerve conduction study proven demyelinating neuropathy, cobalt at 253, the joint is um, fixed, cobalt concentration falls to 10, and she feels better afterwards. Case two, metal on polyethylene that was revised because of a fractured ceramic on ceramic, then he has weight loss and fatigue and anorexia, hypothyroidism, um, later develops a cardiomyopathy, an EF of 50, gets pericardiocentesis, is in shock, is on a balloon pump, gets a liver failure, 
cobalt concentration is 6,500. You know, we're talking about 2 to 10 being a normal range. 6,500 mm -hmm. is his cobalt concentration. They aspirate thick black fluid from around the soft tissue collection around the hip. Um, they, they chelated with uh, dimercaprol. Um, then they emergently remove the hip, but the patient dies from multi-organ failure. And they see that the uh, cobalt-containing femoral head had a lot of grooves, and they released a large quantity of cobalt, obviously, into the patient's blood. So there's a bad one, you know, bad cardiomyopathy. Case three, visual and hearing impairment and paresthesias after revision of a ceramic on ceramic to a metal head. Um, he has a cobalt concentration of 398. After replacing it, it falls to less than one, and most of his uh, symptoms improved markedly, and the paresthesias resolved. Case four, metal and metal hip replacement because there was a failed hip resurfacing procedure prior to that, mental fog, vertigo, hearing loss, breathlessness. Cobalt was 23, and then for progressive hip pain, the hip was revised, not necessarily because of the other symptoms. They didn't notice that it, there was evidence of failure in metallosis, that is, in metal around the tissue in that area. Two days afterwards, it was the concentration was 11, um, and three months later, the symptoms improved, maybe a bit weaker of a case. Five 49-year-old cognitive, behavioral, and mood disturbances then ends up with tinnitus, high-frequency hearing loss, which was subjectively confirmed, sleep apnea, tremor, incoordination, optic atrophy, um, with some visual field cuts. And here we have um, cobalt concentration from 32 to 122, an echo with some diastolic dysfunction. The prosthesis is revised, um, and there was a lot of cobalt in the joint, 3200, but not the serum. Um, and then his mood, his exercise tolerance, the tremor, and the hearing improved, and the diastolic dysfunction resolved. Um, and he had some subtle visual field deficits afterwards. And then his uh, cobalt had fallen to 1.2, 10 months after the revision. So pretty good case. Six, 58-year-old, vision and hearing impairment with a sensory motor peripheral neuropathy um, with abnormalities on nerve conduction studies. Um, Hyperintensity on MRI of the optic nerves and tracts, that's a unique one that I don't think most of them have, saying, you know, this, is that what cobalt looks like on MRI? I guess it did in this case anyway. She had been also been treated for hypothyroidism. She had a revision of a failed ceramic hip with a metal implant. She was almost completely blind, severely deaf, and wheelchair-bound, and her cobalt was 550. Um, they even had CSF cobalt concentrations. They tried chelating her with EDTA, which they don't even specify which specific salt it was. Um, and then seven months after this, she had revision of that hip. There was metallosis. There was wear on the ceramic head. There were broken particles embedded in there. Um, the cobalt concentration improved by half, and she improved progressively over eight months. So the vision remained impaired. So another pretty good consistent case. Seven 
hypothyroid, neuropathy, hearing loss, cobalt concentration greater than 400, metallosis, things improved, thyroid function improved. So you're seeing a, a bit of a trend here. Um, case 8, there was hypothyroidism and neuropathy. There was, again, a ceramic head that was replaced by a metal one. Um, has some cardiomyopathy, cobalt of 625, falls down to near normal range, and many symptoms persisted. So there was some neurologic sequelae. Nine paresthesias, um, pericardial effusion, cardiomegaly, um, concentrations of 500 for the cobalt, got DMPS, um, and then symptoms improved following the prosthesis, but the hearing loss persisted. Um, I do want to find one that I don't, I think I don't need to go into detail on all of them. You just have kind of seen, painted a picture of what most of these look like here. Let me see which one was one that actually got a heart transplant that just for the you know, sheer craziness I want to talk about. 17. 17. So this is a 59 year old. She had, um, Two weeks of exertional dyspnea found to have biventricular failure with an EF of 25 and a mild pericardial effusion. She had had metal-on-metal metal ASR. This brand has come up a few times um, three and four years previously. Her cardiac function deteriorated. She required a left ventricular assist device, then got a, a heart transplant about 14 months after the initial presentation. After the transplant, she ends up with hypothyroidism. She had cataracts they thought were um, related to steroids. And after her heart transplant, she ended up getting an MRI of the hip with a fluid collection. Um, her cobalt was 374. Her, she had progressive uh, dysfunction of her graft despite no evidence of rejection. Um, or coronary disease, and then 12 months after transplant, uh, they ended up getting both of the metal um, prostheses removed. There was metallosis, and the cobalt concentrations came down. She felt better, and her EF got better. So pretty crazy that she ended up with a heart transplant from her cobaltism along with the hypothyroidism. Um, so you can see a lot of these are not just someone shows up, they have the symptoms and they figure it out the next day. There's people that are languishing over periods of years and getting worked up and seen by, obviously by multiple specialties, someone managing with thyroid, someone else for their nerve trouble, someone else for their heart failure, and the pieces don't always obviously come together um, until, you know, maybe they have all of these symptoms. So certainly all of these cases were very notable because they had lots of things going on and they had high concentrations. So these are probably some of the worst possible cases. So, you know, it doesn't mean you can't have toxicity with a lower concentration, but it shows some of the uh, common features. So they say the main categories, as we said, were the neuro and ocular toxicity in 14, cardiotoxicity in 11 out of 18, and thyroid in 50%, nine out of 18. And they say some weight loss, some nausea, um, and others were a bit more rare. Um, they have some ideas of why 
patients may or may not be more susceptible, um, as we've talked about before, different albumin binding. They spend the next bit going through um, a lot of the details of each of these things of neuroocular toxicity, hearing loss, and you know discussing what was going on with each of those. Um, I don't know that we need to delve into each of those again, um, as we pretty much highlighted most of the things between neuropathies, sometimes sensory, or generally sensory, occasionally motor, combination of hearing loss and vision loss that were all a bit different. Could be tinnitus, could be hearing loss. Um, the cardiotoxicity again had a variety of features from the typical symptoms of heart failure, um, global systolic dysfunction or isolated diastolic dysfunction to um, pericardial effusions and dilated cardiomyopathies. Those cardiotoxic patients had you know, fairly high ranges of uh, cobalt concentrations. And that's something we've obviously seen before. We talked about the beer drinkers. Um, and then they discussed the management being that, you know, in all the cases, just revision and removal of that failed prosthesis made those cobalt concentrations drop markedly and their symptoms improve all the way or most of the way um, without chelation having a clear effect, which makes sense. You have a, you know, grams and grams and even more of a prosthetic in somebody and chelating a few milligrams of the cobalt probably is not going to significantly change what's going on when you're continuing to leach cobalt uh, systemically from a, a failed implant. And so the, the definitive management is uh, removal of the, the failed implant. They then give their assessment of, you know, what is consistent with metallosis or systemic cobalt toxicity in the setting of uh, having one of these implants. Pretty much what, what I opened with, do they have known neurologic, cardiac, or thyroid effects for which there's not another good explanation? Um, does it develop within months to years after revision of a hip uh, often with a failed ceramic one, which is probably still actually failed, which causes the wear on the new metal one that they put in. So they probably didn't actually fix the problem mm -hmm. with that revision. Um, measured cobalt concentrations that are substantially higher than those with normal prostheses, which we've highlighted in some of the others, often you know, greater than 250. So in their series, they say you know, 250, and they consider 10 patients out of their 18 to be likely to be due to cobalt exposure, and all of those had concentrations greater than 250. Um, and they often had two out of the three different things involved between thyroid, neurologic, and uh, cardiovascular. And then, of course, it should get better when you remove it and the concentrations fall. Um, so I think that's a, that changed my look at these because I've gotten most of these calls on concentration of 12 or 11 with generic symptoms that don't necessarily fit into this and I think now I have a better picture of at least the typical and bad mm -hmm. you know one is it possible that someone could just have subtle hypothyroidism and not everything else or just a little bit of their hearing or just a you know, maybe worsening of their coexisting CHF that is hard to pick up and know 
the, the cobalt that's 15 and they already have CHF, I mean, that's going to be a difficult case. But at least they present what a, a clear-cut case of cobalt toxicity from uh, a failed hip implant is. Yeah, no, I think it's a pretty good review of what was known, at least up, up to a couple of years ago. I don't know if there's been more case reports since then, but you know, some of these are dramatic where they had heart transplants and LVADs. And, and I think, you know, the general common sense approach is like get a really good history, mostly physical, and see what they're complaining of, and certainly start with the least invasive, easily interpretable things, get a CBC, get a thyroid panel. You know, they're either going to be normal or not. You know, if they're having trouble breathing, maybe they need an echo. If they're having trouble hearing, maybe they need a hearing test. If they got some visual stuff, maybe they need visual fields. And then, uh, you know, put all that together. I, I'd be hard-pressed with people with numbness or weakness to recommend a nerve conduction study or any of these other things, absence of seeing a neurologist perhaps first. But, you know, after they've had this whole workup and if, you know, if their cobalt levels are in the, like, several hundred range, then maybe they need their, their IPS revised certainly they could, we can talk about this modified uh, MRI which can actually get imaging to see if there's actually metallosis going on as yeah. well and part of it may just be that this is evidence of a failing implant that mm -hmm. is going to need revision anyway aside from their systemic weakness all right well I'd like to uh, finish up with a couple of papers um, done by Jerry um, Lichen out of uh, North Shore at Chicago, one of them's just from his clinic, another one's from a, uh, him and another group, both looking at patients who got referred with uh, hip implants and the various complaints they have. And I remember this is a slightly different group, not these horrible case reports, but often people who are referred because of some vague complaints. So we'll start with the first one, which is out of, again, Clint Talks from two thir 2013. So Tony, tell us about that one. Yeah, so this is um, this paper is titled Outpatient Toxicology Clinic Experience of Patients with Hip Implants. Um, so we did a, a lot of the background about these cobalt um, hip implants. Basically, they gained popularity in the 80s and 90s. Um, but because some of them have been failing, um, people have been trying to, uh, orthopedic doctors specifically, have been sending uh, a lot of whole blood and serum metal concentrations basically to try and monitor for the failure of hips. Um, there are some suggestions about what levels we should use and, and things like that, but there's really no official guideline and, and not a good way to sort of interpret these levels. Um, so this study uh, was basically aiming to characterize the outpatient experience of patients seeking uh, information on these metal-on-metal -metal implants as well as some of the other hip types. Um, so this is an observational retrospective um, consecutive case series from two outpatient clinics over basically a two and a half year period. Um, they took down demographics, signs and symptoms and interventions and, um, and blood and serum cobalt and chromium levels were analyzed. So uh, they had 39 total patients over the period, 12 were male, 27 were female, average age was 55.6. Um, 26 of the patients had metal-on-metal -metal implants, and 13 of the patients uh, did not have non-metal-on-metal -metal implants. 74% of the patients had hip or thigh pain, or like a clicking sound with ambulation. Um, 12 of those patients, or 12 of the 39 total patients, uh, sought care for basically completely asymptomatic metal level elevation. So they were told that they had an elevated level, and, and 
were told to go to the tox clinic um, and had no symptoms whatsoever. Um, when they analyzed the symptoms and the concentrations, um, they basically found no difference in metal ion concentration between symptomatic and asymptomatic people, which I thought was very interesting. Um, Ten patients uh, complained of tinnitus, uh, which they said is pretty commonly seen with hip replacement, but really no significant difference between the metal-on-metal -metal and non-metal-on-metal -metal group. Uh, nine patients had generalized fatigue, so that was another major complaint that they saw. Uh, three patients were diagnosed with a demyelination neuropathy. Two had ataxia, and one of the patients with the neuropathy had significant improvement after uh, they did a hip revision, which was another interesting um, symptom. 20 of uh, 39 patients had uh, revision of, of their hips and 13 had pre-procedure blood cobalt and chromium done. Um, the cobalt, the average cobalt uh, concentration prior to hip revision was 55 and after hip revision was 2.2 nanograms per mil. Chromium, was, the average uh, level was 38, and the average after hip revision was 2.8. So both had really significant drops, which um, I think has been kind of discussed in other cases as well. So clearly revising hips um, can, can drop the, the chromium and cobalt levels in these people. Uh, and then overall, cobalt and chromium levels were 10 and 5-fold higher, respectively, in metal-on-metal -metal patients than non-metal-on-metal -metal patients. Um, so these very clearly elevate your serum levels. Um, so as far as discussion goes, a lot of this has kind of been talked about uh, with, with some of the other stuff. Um, they talked a little bit about uh, different common signs and symptoms that we think might be related to uh, chromium and cobalt toxicity. They talk about neuropathies and, and um, some case studies about cardiomyopathy or case series and reports about cardiomyopathies and cobalt toxicity. Um, and then some cases of demyelination syndrome, which they saw here. Uh, and then they kind of went over that British study that, that um, suggested that 7 micrograms per liter would be a, like a good level to, um, to be the cutoff. Um, what they said about their study was basically documents that metal and metal hip implants can uh, result in increased serum, cobalt, and chromium levels, but there's really no correlation with... Um, with symptoms, uh, they um, patients often complain of local symptoms, but um, but systemic symptoms really need to be investigated further because they may or may not be related at all. Uh, and then monitoring of of um, the serum metal levels, they concluded really seemed to have limited utility based on what they based on what they um, saw in their patient population. And they concluded basically that, that future studies are really needed to determine causality between these metal-on-metal -metal hip arthroplasties and uh, systemic toxicity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I it was interesting just reading through this and seeing, you know, the fact that the people had really no difference in uh, symptoms, whether they had elevated levels or not. There wasn't really a correlation there at all, um, which seems... Yeah, so as you increase the awareness is there may be a problem and there's these, you know, late night lawyers on TV saying if you had an implant, go see your doctor and they yeah. end up, you know, getting funneled to a one or two clinics. You see people with and without the right type of hip complaining of the same kind of complaints and most of these people don't have the severe levels and the severe physiology 
that Mike talked about in the review of the bad ones. But right. I mean, you know, these people are concerned, and it's worth screening them. And I say the sort of the non-invasive stuff makes sense if they're concerned to make sure that they don't have heart failure or visual field cuts or whatever. But then if the levels aren't too high, certainly don't want to suggest replacing your hips at uh, these levels. Um, you know, you guys know a little bit about maybe the pathophysiology of that cobalt is a, you know, divalent cation and probably interferes a little bit with the Krebs cycle and yeah. at least excess NADH and uh, affect production of acetyl-CoA and succinyl-CoA and a variety of these other um, middle molecules of metabolism. Yep. So, I mean, it does have some physiologic effects. You shouldn't downplay the fact that, you know, you may see hundreds of these patients and then the hundredth of one is the one who walks in and has some real, real disease. Um, he recently uh, published another paper in the Journal of MedTox in just September of this year. Um, looked at, I believe, a different cohort of people with other uh, groups of toxicology clinics retrospectively again. So tell us about that final paper. Adrian? Yeah, so this paper is titled Metal on Metal Hip Joint Prosthesis, a retrospective case series investigating the association of systemic toxicity with serum cobalt and chromium concentrations. Um, they do discuss a lot of the same things we've already been over, but they do note that the conflicting evidence about the correlation between higher serum concentrations and systemic toxicity, as Tony um, discussed. So this um, is a retrospective review of consecutive patients with metal and metal hip prosthesis that were undertaken at two sources. So one of them was that specialist outpatient clinic, clinical toxicology service in London, which I believe was included in the last study. Um, and then they also included the uh, data from toxic registry. So this, the first case uh, of referral from the London service was in June 2011, and once approved by the toxic registry, they admitted their first case in April 2014, and they continued this until June 2015. They collected a lot of the same information that was collected in the last case, or the last paper. Um, but they identified 31 cases. There were 17 from the toxic database, and there were 14 from that outpatient clinical toxicology service in the UK. Um, they had cobalt concentrations for all 31 um, people, uh, and, but only 24 for the uh, chromium concentrations. And they do note that if there was a whole blood value um, instead of a serum, that they converted it to a serum concentration um, using a previously described method, statistical analysis, um, to just keep everything on the same page, essentially. And they found the median peak serum cobalt concentration was 10. Um, the interquartile range was 3.8 to 32.8 uh, micrograms per liter. And as far as chromium, uh, it was in those 24 cases. Um, the median peak serum chromium concentration was 6.9 micrograms per liter with a interquartile range of 30.7 to 18.7. So there were 23 of the 31 patients that were actually symptomatic, and that's why they were referred um, to figure out if these symptoms were actually related to cobalt or chromium toxicity. 
Um, there were eight people that were asymptomatic, and of those eight people, four of, the, four of them had cobalt concentrations above that MHRA threshold concentration of seven that we discussed before. Um, but they ultimately, they found that there was no significant difference between cobalt or chromium concentrations between symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. They noted the most commonly reported symptoms were lethargy, malaise, and hearing loss, uh, followed by tinnitus. Um, overall, none of the reported features or investigation results really correlated at all with concentrations, both cobalt and chromium. There were two patients that were diagnosed with significant systemic toxicity, cobalt toxicity, and both of these were men. One was in the UK and one was in the US. And the first case, it was a gentleman with bilateral hip prosthesis, and he presented seven years with increasing hip pain, lethargy, and he had a peak serum cobalt concentration of 164, and his chromium was 100. And he went underwent revision of both of his hips, and he had improvement in his symptoms, and again, his levels dropped that we've seen in the other cases. Second one was a six-year-old who just had one hip, uh, implant and he actually presented 16 years after with predominantly neurologic symptoms, numbness, tinnitus, hearing loss, and he actually had um, confirmed um, peripheral axonal neuropathy and optic neuropathy, but he had a peak serum cobalt concentration of um, 1096 micrograms per liter. But um, so obviously with these two patients, the, the diagnosis of systemic toxicity um, the median at peak serum cobalt concentration was significantly higher than those without toxicity. There were 12 patients who ended up getting that MRI that you discussed before, mm -hmm. and two of those, so 16.7% had evidence on these MRIs of adverse local tissue reactions. Um, and again, this, uh, these were not related to the serum concentrations of cobalt or chromium. So in their discussion, they talk again about the release of cobalt and chromium ions in the blood. That, that, that's obviously the concern. This is from wear and erosion. And you know, what is the significance of an elevated concentration in asymptomatic patients? It's kind of unclear. Um, they again review kind of the evidence that um, the studies that we already kind of went over, um, kind of various results. And, you know, these results are very similar to this, the study we just discussed um, that showed no correlation between concentrations of chromium and cobalt um, and any reported symptoms. Um, and they also looked at, like, hypothyroidism. Again, did not see any correlation with the concentration in that disease entity. Um, let's see. So they had no cases of adverse... Um, local tissue reactions or cardiomyopathy in patients who had concentrations of chromium and cobalt less than that cutoff, the MHRA cutoff of seven micrograms per liter. Um, but they say that despite this, um, our uh, tissue, the results are consistent with the published data for adverse local tissue reactions, which shows that while reported metal ion concentrations tend to be higher in those with such reactions, there remains a high degree of variability. It does not follow a clear dose-response relationship. So they had, you know, there was an equal number of asymptomatic patients who had 
uh, metal ion concentrations less than that cutoff. There was the equal number above it. And it was actually interesting because the median peak cobalt concentration amongst the asymptomatic patients was higher, significantly higher than the symptomatic patients. So that makes no sense, really. Um, they discussed the two patients that actually had really um, severe cobalt toxicity. Um, those levels were, again, 1,096 in one of the patients and 164 in the other. But um, there were two other people in this series that actually had no systemic toxicity or significant symptoms, and they had similar numbers there. And there was actually one that was completely asymptomatic. So they, again, note this study highlights the current difficulty in the interpretation of metal ion concentrations in the context of these metal and metal hip prosthesis for both adverse local tissue reactions and systemic toxicity. Um, they do note that this is a very rare entity, and with this experience over these few years in London and the U.S., um, referrals were very low, and they actually only identified these two patients that had pretty significant toxicity. So that is definitely a limitation. And they also know, this is kind of interesting, that another limitation is that they, um, most cases didn't have like a repeat concentration of cobalt or chromium drawn, and so it's possible, you know, that the peak concentration was missed or it was, um, you know, occurred prior. So, um, you know, it would be better in future studies just to have a more consistent timing of the measurements. So overall, they report um, symptoms and investigation results did not correlate with peak serum cobalt or chromium concentrations. And although people have, there is a high prevalence of symptoms, um, they just don't correlate at all. Yeah, so I think when we get called, you know, we'll see what the level, we can see what the level is because we're probably going to get called after a level has been drawn, yeah. not before someone walks into an office and says, I have this hip, should I get a level or not? We tend not to get called at that point. Um, you know, if their level's really below 10, I mean, I think we're kind of done. And if they have other complaints, they should do a focused workup on whatever those complaints are, whether it's shortness of breath or fatigue or whatever. You know, if the level's in the 200 to above range, then they probably do need not only a focused, uh, complete physical and history done, but perhaps some of these testing to see if they've got hypothyroidism, low ejection fraction, decreased hearing velocity, decreased visual fields, or quadrantinal beers was described in one case. And at that point, you have to sit down and kind of weigh the pros and cons. Um, you know, if they're able to tolerate a hip operation again, then really probably the right thing to do if they have one of these you know, effects that is due to cobalt is to take the hips out and replace it with a non-cobalt hip and you know, note at the time of operation the degree of metallosis involved. I imagine it's sort of an in-between decisive move. You can get this specialized MRI and see if they have inflammatory pseudotumor metallosis visual on this modified MRI, which would, I think, push you more to replace the hip, especially if there's localized pain. Um, as far as the numbness and tingling and aches and pains all over, I don't know. I would punt to a neurologist about who does or doesn't need electromyography and electron nerve studies and whatnot. Um, and I don't know what 
what those would mean if there's significant slowing or sensory neural neuropathy and their levels in the 200 above range, then they also probably need their, their hips revised. But that seems to be the minority of cases that present with just that. I mean, the real serious ones tend to present with these tinnitus and dyspnea and heart failure and hypothyroidism cases. My guess is we're going to see more of these. It's, it's more widely available. You can go on the internet. There's blogs all about this and people talk to each other. So, um, you know, we shouldn't, you know, just be dismissive. We should get all these people worked up. But um, again, you know, I would be glad and any of us should be to have a conversation with the orthopedic surgeon before they're jumping in and revising hips with the levels and the numbers and the other you know, evaluations of systemic toxicity don't fit, you know, just because the level's 10 or 20, I would not revise a hip in the absence of any other signs of systemic toxicity. So I think we'll see more, and uh, until next time, uh, this is the Oregon Poison Center.